What is going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Retail Coffee Break. This is your host, Nick McHenry, and welcome to the podcast where I speak to the retail and fashion industry about, well, retail and fashion. <laughs> and this is actually a fun new subseries that we are going to be kicking off here that is going to aptly be called Campfire Conversation. We're putting the coffee away and we're breaking out the marshmallows to have the campfire conversation around retail. How did this come about? Well, some of my friends and colleagues in the retail industry were chit-chatting about all of the conversation out there around the future of retail amidst all of the craziness happening with COVID-19. And we just felt that a lot of the conversation was so serious and trying to predict what's going to happen with the retail industry. And we just wanted to admit that we have no idea. We really don't know what's going to happen because we can't remember the last time a global pandemic hit the industry or the world or any of our lives for that matter. So we're calling this series Campfire Conversation because it's just going to be an open forum where we get together and have just a casual conversation around retail, the industry we love, and kind of going to let it flow freely to wherever it goes. My first guest around the campfire is Andrew Smith, who is the founder of Think Uncommon. That is thinkuncommon.com, where they deliver improved performance for retail by guiding and implementing innovation, leadership, practices, and culture. Yes, I stole that from the homepage of the website. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did, as my friend Andrew and I have a drink, talk about retail, and yep, that's pretty much all we do. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the inaugural episode of Campfire Conversations. I'm here with the one the only, the infamous Andrew Smith from thinkuncommon.com. What's going on, man? Infamous. I don't, I don't know what I need to know about that you've I, heard. I was going to say, I was going to say famous, but with the hat slightly tilted, I was going to say, I mean, it just seems like it would be an infamous. You know, what? I, if I'm neither of those things, I think I'm probably happy. <laughs> That's fine. I don't need to be famous. Being infamous has just these connotations. I'm good with it. All right. I keep sitting here with my unnecessarily hot garb and uh and a fake cigar all right all right i mean but it looks like i mean super classy it's kind of like this weird thing in my brain because you're on the new 20th cent 21st century zoom call or whatnot and you look like you're from the the 50s well i mean you know i I think i have the heart of the 50s built into me i come from melbourne um i'm gonna use it as a segue um to my drink um special drinks all right so I come from Melbourne in Australia as, you know, I, I could come in and start going get a cobbers or something um, so that you believe me, but just trust that I'm from Australia. I know I sound <laughs> British Americans, but whatever. Um, so I've, I've of course come with an espresso martini, uh, equal parts espresso, Kahlua and vodka. This is a vanilla vodka actually. It makes it a delightful bit sweeter. So uh, Melbourne is the unofficial home to the espresso martini. I'm pretty sure it wasn't invented there, but 
what Australians are really good at is taking something, getting obsessed with it, and then it becomes like it just it's everywhere. So no Melbourneian doesn't uh, finish the week with it without an espresso martini. I'm pretty sure. So cheers to you, friend. Really, I, I won't take a sip yet because I got to hear about your drink first. Cheers, cheers to you, a- absolutely. So. I was super excited to bring on because we've only been drinking homemade wine that we made six to eight months ago because I'm upstate New York. I'm not in the city anymore. I'm actually upstate in the the woods where we actually make our own wine. So I was super excited, but it was painfully apparent when I went and looked for it. We're out. So that's how long we've been in quarantine for. We're gone. So I took my mind to every bar in the world. Exactly. We're literally out of the gallon of homemade wine that we made for. I mean, we didn't make it for this time, but it ended up taking, you know, taking front center stage. So instead, I use my uh, my mason jar mug and I poured a beer in it because that's all I had left. Nice. So, well, I, I good on you. Uh, with drinking skills like that, we'll probably make you an honorary Australian. I oh, I, I, I love it. it. Cheers to you. Cheers well to you too, Cheers, my brother. brother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had no idea that that was the drink started by Australians or started by Melbourne, by the way. I'm fairly sure it's not started. Don't, let, let's not get me in trouble. <laughs> I think it's so many great Twitter messages from like the Italians who were like, hey, we've been drinking that for longer than you, you know, you've been a formerly modern country. I, I, I think, um, you know, I don't know. Who knows? Australia's got a wonderful history. It's got the oldest living culture on the earth. Uh, it's uh, we cling, like just cling to our cities around the coast. We're all in big cities, to be fair. Um, but you know, Melbourne's the home of culture in Australia, in my view. Well, at least at least when it comes to drinking culture and arts culture, I'll give it that much. Right. But um, uh, there are certainly other parts of Australia that have incredible cultures to it. But uh, anyway, cheers to Melbourne's drink. Yeah, should sure. we explain why we're dressed up, by the way? Is that weird? Pro- pro- probably. I feel like we should give some color to that because we called it a campfire conversation, but I feel like neither you nor I would go to a campfire dressed like this. Or maybe. So why so why don't why don't you why don't you explain why we're, why we're dressed this way? Uh, okay, uh well, I mean you we, we we originally threw around the ideas of this as an idea of this conversation, this idea of talking to the issues that are facing retail everywhere from people who just want to talk about it and not want to feel like they have to have all the answers. I think, it, I think you said it beautifully in one of our conversations leading up to this. There are so many panels of people saying, this is what's going to happen. This is what you need to be doing. This, I don't think anyone knows what's going to happen with certainty. And I think any really good strategist never does. What they do is they build in the idea of throwing things around a room and seeing which ones make sense and which aligns to what they're doing, their business is meant to be doing. Mm. Um, and, you know, it gets them in the mindset, I think, of being prepared for the ultimate, you know, reopening of the world's economies. It's going to happen at one point. Retail is this incredible industry. I think it's like, it's such, it's such a really, like, um, I don't know, blend of feelings because I'm so proud of retail right now. Like retailers stood up and, you know, rocked up to work to ensure we're all fed and watered and entertained and everything else that we need delivered to homes and that there's people behind the scenes, the delivery drivers, the warehouse workers. You know, retail's really stood up to the plate in the crisis and I think that's incredible and there's this beautiful story that I hope will come out of it about how, you know, retail is this family, um, which anyone who's been in retail knows it and anyone who's been in retail knows that retail has this incredible family feel to it. You know, you, you rock up to work every day and go to battle with these, you know, people next to you, um, shoulder to shoulder, 
you know, face the best of humanity, the worst of humanity through these challenging times. You know, and it's it's been it's been a tough time of disruption for retail over the last few years. It's been you know, up until January, you would have heard me rant that you know retail's not having an economic crisis; it's having an existential one. And then, bam! This happens, and wow! We've actually we've got both now. Like we're in an economic crisis, and there's a bunch of people that are out of jobs and doing it tough. There's a whole bunch of people who are sick. There'll be people who have lost loved ones or have had loved ones sick throughout all of this as well. Um, you know, who are furloughed workers. You know, it's it's devastating to see that happen to your broader family, people you've not met but you still consider your family. And that, as I said, is what retail is all about. So it's you know, it's kind of heartbreaking at that uh, in that way, but. It's also heartwarming to watch how people do just get the job done and put their health at risk and get to work and do amazing, cool stuff to help, um, you know, push ideas through, push new processes through just so we can get our favourite, um, I don't know, uh, mac and cheese. Let me play to the American audience. Right. Um, <laughs> like what do we, you know, what do we need and how do we get it and how do we do it faster? Like the amount of retailers now that have stood up online ordering pick up curbside, all of this stuff, tech, you know, innovations that consumers have been demanding in small clumps, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's all of a sudden going to become mainstream. I think that's really cool. And I think the optimism of retail to do that so, at such pace, I think is, is just incredible. And it'll be, it'll be we're going to be stronger for it, no doubt. Now, of course, there's going to be some devastating stories of businesses that couldn't make it through or people that, you know, can't get hired straight up and have to look at a different career and, you know, all of those things. And, I, and I, again, my heart breaks for that bit. But there's this optimistic side of me that also says, you know, as an industry, we, we've faced every disruption and come out better for it. This is just another one. You know, we were, you know, knee deep in the existential crisis of, you know, physical, digital, blah, blah. You know, the internet changed the way retailers need to retail. People were trying to work out how to innovate and get ready for it. Whereas, you know, now we got slapped with this economic crisis as well. You know, we'll be stronger for it, I'm sure of it at the end. But that's enough of a rant. Sorry, I'll have a sip and give you a chance to say something. No, I, I think it's. I think everything you said there is is super correct. And and like I think you and I, we like we, we reason we're doing this is because it's really through conversation. I think that we're going to sort of discover as we go along, it's not like we're going to, you and I are going to discover today. Oh my God, we have this breakthrough about here's how we're going to attack next month, the month after the month after the month after. I think it's just a continual conversation as opposed to simply like a, let's establish the one set plan right now and let's figure out like, okay, let's plan out the next six months right now today. So I think that's, you know, just starting that conversation about, cause like to your point of like, yes, it was already in a tough, a tough point prior to this. And now that we have the economic layer onto it it just increasingly complicates the situation i would say so andrew on that go ahead go ahead no i was gonna say it does complicate it but it also gives you a kind of a proverbial kick up the butt like it kind of it will it will um if i look at places where like i was talking to a, a, a wonderful human who i have regular contacts we have a reverse mentor situation we both help each other she works for a major retailer in the US and she was talking about, oh, I wish it could be like this all the time. Like I, I could wish, I wish that there was this red tape was gone. I wish there was this alignment in the leadership team. I wish there was this kind of common purpose and belief in what we do um, because we're awesome when we're doing that. And, you know, I think if I look at that story and, you know, and, and kind of, 
broad brush that across retail as an industry. I think that's an incredible opportunity. Like if we if we look at what we can uh, can create, mm-hmm. um, you know, in times of crisis, and then look at that as an inspiration to kind of replicate that more often. I think that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one of the reasons I do what I do now is because like retailers struggle with um, ch- rate of change, rate of innovation. I guess now the retailers do some incredible innovation, but doing you know how, how to do it and test constantly and build constantly and and fail constantly and all of those kind of relatively cliched innovation terms. Like um, you know, this could be a great chance. There'll be a whole bunch of retailers out there who are trying new stuff because crap what else are we going to do like we're screwed at the moment we've got to try and come up with something so we can keep our customer base like that mindset is actually not just one for crisis it could be one that we use more commonly Mm -hmm. um but we don't for some reason and you know so hopefully this shifts a whole bunch of people's mindset i reckon about um about what you know what it can be for the future so on that note how do you recommend because you're used to, you know, training retailers through constant innovation, sort of adapting to the times with given that we don't know what's going to happen, like no one knows what next month will be like or the month after. Like in your opinion, I guess, what's the way to think about being I'd say, more reactionary or setting contingency plans in place and putting in like multiple tests or or one test just to get started? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's an amazing topic to think through because part of me wants to go just think of the new consumer and what the new consumer is going to be doing. There's a whole bunch of people who have not been digitally native who are going to be taking on digital behaviours you know, through this crisis because they have to, mm-hmm. like curbside pickup. You know, I was talking to my partner's incredible, wonderful parents who were using curbside pickup, which, you know, they're having to forego their regular outing of going to get the shop. Um, you know, and I sit there and think, you know, this is incredible because they're using this experience for the first time and it might be something that some of us who, you know, are digitally native or, you know, a little more savvy to. Age has nothing to do with it, by the way. I didn't, I'm not meaning to suggest that because they're older, they're not digitally native. That's not true and, you know, and I hate people that kind of, I hate organisations that group people into age groups because it doesn't make sense. It's behaviour that matters. You know, they weren't digitally native. They have become, have been forced to become, like you know, digitally behaviored at least in some extent. Uh, you know, they're they're going to potentially see value in that in the future. So, like that, um, those digital capabilities that we've been forced to use are going to be probably more common. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, it'll reset expectations. You know, when Uber came in, Uber disrupted retail too because uh, you know. It, it, it showed you how transparency and swiftness and completely digitally enabled solutions should be. And therefore every retailer that had an app is all of a sudden being measured by the customer against what Uber's doing for them. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a thousand examples like that. And I think, you know, now people will have seen and experienced curbside pickup online orders, deliveries, all that kind of stuff. So part of me is like, well, what is the new consumer behavioral element going to look like? You know, what's the level of digital adoption versus not blah, blah, blah. But also I think, I mean, that's very pointed and I think it'll, you know, it'll mean something to some retailers and not others um, and some people's jobs and not others. The best advice, like, like for me, the number one reason behind, you know, the, the slower rate of innovation and rate of change and adaption and new things in retail is not because we don't want to, not because we don't have the ideas, but it's because we've got processes that, 
you know, we've believed in for a thousand years. You look at the Istanbul markets to now, it's basically retails a game of process. Mm-hmm. It's a game of kind of numbers and pace. Um, and it's really difficult to shift your mindset to kind of thinking about um, what, you know, a tech company, for example, has just ingrained in their culture. So I'd be using this time right now. And it's, you know, it's a gen- if you have time, like, you know, there are people who are at jobs, there are people who are freaked out about jobs and I don't want to like talk that down. Like that's scary as hell. But, you know, for those who are in the privileged position where they're actually genuinely just able to start thinking about their business or so working on the business instead of in the business for the first time in who knows when, that's a hard thing to do in a retailer. Mm-hmm. Um, think about that. Think about how you change culture, processes, leadership alignment, your purpose and, you know, more transparency with your customer and, um, you know, the, the governance processes, the funding um, allocations that you put towards innovation projects versus non-innovation projects, stuff like that. I'd say this is the right time to do a pivot, not of your brand, not of your position, not of your product, but of your internal workings. How do you shift a little bit and say, hey, Change apparently is not only constant, but it's happening in every freaking angle, every freaking week. Um, how do I build a business that can do it? So there's two types of resilient. My, my business partner, who is intensely smarter than me, um, uh, it comes from being more than twice my age. I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> um, he, he always talks about there's like there's two types of resilience. There's resilience, which is, no, I will plant my feet and stand my ground. Retailers are really bloody good at that. Like we're really good at kind of having our set ways. And then there is resilience, which is how do I adapt to change constantly? How am I ready to adapt to change constantly? Mm-hmm. And I think if I can, you know, if you can have an espresso martini with yourself as a retailer right now, um, it would be, you know, sit there and reflect on how do I increase my rate of change? How do I increase my rate of innovation, my rate of evolution? Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't matter what you do, what you know your focus is, whether you're a DTC brand, direct-to-consumer brand that's about to come into physical retail, you know, sorry about the timing. <laughs> uh, if you're the opposite, you know, a physical brand that's trying to adapt into the digital world a bit more, um, you know, just think about that because I, I reckon if you're a retailer that has a core strength in being able to change and innovate fast, I reckon doesn't matter what the disruption is, you're going to be ready for it. That was a long rant. Sorry, mate. Pick it apart. Go no, so I, I absolutely love the way that you, you phrase that because I think that we hear often nowadays about, I mean, pivots being thrown around a million times a day and it's always usually geared towards the product or the business model standpoint of like, if you're a brick and mortar only business, you need to somehow pivot into a Zoom call business or a remote business or some kind of something. So I love the idea of taking it even deeper level and pivoting the internal structure. Like nobody might see it, but you're completely pivoting the way that you work because you're sort of forced to right now, even if to the outside, nothing has changed besides the fact that you're you know innovating faster because you've completely changed the way at the core, core level of your company, you actually operate. So I, I love that, the way you said that. Do you, th- go ahead. So you, no, yeah, you go, you go. I was going to say, do you think, because you had kind of touched upon it earlier with, you know, retail was already at a certain point pre-COVID and now it's, you know, just intensified with some of these things you mentioned, like digital transformation and stuff, you know, internal slowness in the retail world, what have you. Do you think what's happened in the last six weeks is just going to accelerate 
all of the change that probably should have been happening before? Or do you think the whole rule book's kind of been thrown out the window and you sort of have to look at it with fresh eyes, a new scenario, or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, I mean, oh man, I mean, like, we don't know. Yeah, true. Like, I don't, I don't reckon we know. If I look at places like, uh, you know, that have, you know, I'm from Australia. Australia has been incredibly strict and has kind of responded relatively strongly. Probably not, like, you know, not as well as in New Zealand or a South Korea. Um, but you know, there, the the way that it's pivoted is essentially people are allowed to go out, but operationally, you need to have. There's going to be some considerations you need to take into account. Whether it be, you know, South Korea, where you're measuring temperature of people coming into your store, you know, social distancing guidelines being, you know, met within the store space. Now, reopening the economy doesn't mean that we've cured the thing. It just means that our economy is reopened. We've got to be smarter about it. So there's going to be an element of just immediate operational solutions. You just have to think about what your store, your physical and digital retail experience looks like um, in you know the immediate world. And then there's um, this longer term point, which I think comes back to the core of your question of like, hey, um, does this change retail completely or is it actually just helping retail catch up to consumer behavior Mm -hmm. and i reckon it's probably closer to the latter i think we're just pushing we've pushed a ton of stuff through the realization across boards and ceo levels and teams about the importance of like those integrated digital physical experiences Mm -hmm. the actual role of a store Mm-hmm. It's something that a lot of people, including me, have ranted about for a long time. The role of stores pivoting considerably to being more of like your brand storytelling experience. It's your acquisition channel. That's why you see all birds, you know, who are doing brilliantly, brands like them, coming into the physical space space because they, they want to grow and they want to expand their, their brand to, to new markets. Um, you know, so there is a purpose for this physical real estate, which is predominantly driven by the fact that we're a pack animal. Humans are a pack animal. We, don't, we elevate ourselves a lot when maybe sometimes it's important to think about what are our core evolved behaviours. And being a pack animal, wanting to get out, wanting to experience things, wanting to tell stories, hear stories, be part of stories, all that kind of stuff is really ingrained into who we are. So I think um, if, I, if I had a dream state, which is probably a better answer because it's not, uh, you know, well, I'm not full of shit, basically. If I was to sit here and tell you this is what it's going to be like, this is what your customers are going to be like, this is what yeah. you should do as a brand, yeah. I'd be talking rubbish. Like my dream state would be that this helps retailers massively accelerate digital capability, existing retailers. It helps um, humans, so consumers and people who work in, in retailers realize the importance of the balance between digital and physical and the role of those two mm-hmm. so that at the end we can actually end up with what it is that the people who give us money want, right. which is I want to be entertained, I want to be part of a story, I want to be, you know, I want to know who I'm giving my money to, I want to feel good about giving my money to you. Mm. Um, increasingly, I want to be able to have the convenience of being able to do a whole bunch of stuff from my pocket wherever I am. Um, you know, all of those things, if this does any good, if this crisis does any good, it'll be that it accelerates the capability so that retailers can start fulfilling that. I I completely agree. I mean, I, I, I think that if, if even a small margin of customer expectation driven by other industries that are non-retail oftentimes gets caught up and yeah. retailers can adapt and, and service their customer in more places, that will be 
you know, an absolutely amazing outcome for, for everybody, especially the customer. At the end of the day, like you said it, like you kind of laughed, like the people who give us money, but at the end of the day, they give us money because we're wowing them or we're creating something we're, for we're them. We're a for-profit industry. Like, yeah. And that's okay because we yeah. should be. And yeah. it's like, because we all go to work for money. We're all for-profit people. Right. So it's like, um, you know, there are non-profit organizations, um, of course, but, you know, from a retail point of view, most of us are a for-profit industry. We might be a social enterprise. We might be all of this. But, you know, we shouldn't walk away from the commercial element. You know, one of the things I talk about all the time, you know, whether it be, with friends or, or, or clients or whomever. I'm going to throw the question at you, by the way, in video you mentioned with, I'm going to have conversations with friends and acquaintances. Uh, and my partner said immediately, which one are you, by the way? I'm like, <laughs> All right, I'll put that to Nick on the call. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I'm ranting. Um, I, I think if you, you know, if you, there are two real drivers to like any retail business decision-making right. it's commercial imperative. But what, what do I need to do to ensure I'm continually delivering on my commercial imperatives? Now that might be to donate millions and millions of dollars to causes might be to donate millions and millions of dollars to rich shareholders. It might be whatever, like you know, that's my commercial imperative, right? Lower costs, blah, blah, blah. There's a human driver element that has to be taken into account and, 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 um, delivered on it's actually the root cause of delivering on the commercial imperative so there's this human driver that delivers on the commercial imperative and if you forget one of those two things it won't work right um so with you know again this is a long-winded rant this is the danger of putting me on a call with an espresso in my hand. <laughs> rant a lot sober let alone after a drink um is that you'll if you forget that we are a human business we're human to human in the most part you know whether it be a chat with someone in a call center, you know, that's part of our business, doesn't matter where they are in the world, whether it be in the store, whether it be emailing to a, a ninja in the back of house, like it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, we're human to human. That's what retail, that's what makes retail incredible. Mm-hmm. That's what makes us who we are. It makes us what, why we're consistent. It makes us why we've been around for, you know, since the Istanbul bazaars, like it's like, this is, this is the reason that we exist. We're mm-hmm. a human to human business. And if you forget the human side, you're going to fall away. And, you know, there are too many great brands that have done that, mm-hmm. that have focused on the commercial imperatives alone, mm-hmm. and it's never enough. And, yeah. you know, I keep watching. I'm not, I will never mention names, particularly in a format like this, but like I'm looking at brands that are these big iconic brands that I think are making commercial decisions at the moment. Mm-hmm. People will have a memory about what you do during mm-hmm. this crisis. People will say, you furloughed uh, your workers straight away, you didn't pay your rents. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. Um, you did it without care. Um, people will remember that and that will actually influence whether or not they will shop with you because they watch the news or they read this. Now, it might not be a huge shift, but it'll be a shift. So it's like people are watching how you react to this. And when you're in a human business, you've got to be human, human about it. And there's some incredible, wonderful stories coming out of retail right now, mm-hmm. people hiring, of people you know, giving people pay rises, Mm-hmm. You know, when, you know, everything in terms of demand and commercial is going down because it's just the right thing to do to support your workforce that's supported you. So, yeah, I think, I think there'll be a really interesting element to, to the recovery, which is how have people watched how you've handled this and how does that influence whether they give you money or not? Mm-hmm. I think that'll be freaking fascinating. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to piggyback off of, I mean, what you, you said right there is, 
And you kind of say like, I actually considered like that part about the like, whole friends or acquaintances on here. But I think I think that's the beauty of, of why we both love the retail industry because I think in our industry, I, I hold this perspective personally. I think other people in retail do. To me, compared to other people out in the world, my view of acquaintance and friend is actually much closer than I think a lot of people view. I, I could work on a sales floor and meet many acquaintances during a day and have a 15 minute conversation with one person and consider us friends by the end of that 15 minute conversation, just because of that interaction, that human to human interaction, like you said, that we had. So with this like kind of format, as we continue with this, I mean, I truly believe I could hop on here and I, you could hop on here with a complete stranger, talk for mm-hmm. half an hour and walk away friends pretty much, <laughs> you know, like it might not be a super strong, like tenured friendship, but still, you know, some kind of friends, you, have, you know, stuff about each other, you, you know, you have that kind of bond or whatnot. And I, I think it's a very short jump from acquaintance to friends. So it's almost just like how many times you've spoken before that almost. So, some of my best friends who have been, you know, great, amazing, incredible friends of mine for over a decade are people who I worked on the shop floor with. And yeah. I think because it, it, retail is just, you're right. It is this incredibly interesting, dynamic place that has wonderful humor. It just attracts wonderful humans. Mm-hmm. Some stay a short while because they're, you know, working whilst they're at uni. Mm-hmm. Some stay a long while. You know, I, I've told you my story before, but for anyone else, you know, I was studying at uni. I you know, became a pilot for about 10 seconds before I couldn't anymore. Um, and then I was just like, I adored retail though. So I will just go do that for a little while until I work out what I do next. And I realized that, hey, this is this stunning gift from the universe, to be fair, because I love this industry. I love what it stands for. I love what it does every day. I love how it changes society. I love the way that it influences society. I like the influence you can have when you're working in retail. It's like it is just a beautiful, stunning place to be. And, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I look back on it and think, man, if there was, if there was that parallel universe where you know medical things didn't happen and I could be a pilot, I mean, more, yeah, I could be super happy flying seven three sevens back and forth from Melbourne to Sydney. But I mean, I can't imagine it would make me happier than I am working in this industry now and, and right. you know helping retailers try and be better. I think, like, I think it's yeah, I don't know, it's a gift, it's a gift, and it's a gift of an industry. So you're right. I mean, you know, we catch up all the time and and. Um, and you know, have these chats and say how quickly we've become friends. I think is right. an incredible testament to this kind of battle scarred retailer yeah. view of the world. I think yeah. it's very cool. On on that note, I want to do kind of like a I'll share then you share kind of thing here because yeah. uh, so I feel like there is with everything happening because everyone's kind of in the same situation all at the same time. I want to say groupthink per se, but there is like forming shared ideas in the public that sort of everyone seems to be believing. So I want to ask you after I'll share you mine, but I want to ask you kind of like if there's anything out there that you sort of hold the counter viewpoint to or maybe something that's not maybe talked about in the public as much. For for me, um, and this is not criticizing anybody because it's a complicated topic. Once again, the preface of this whole conversation is I don't know. I don't know for sure. So uh, it's not like me trying to predict anything. But I I, to everything we've been saying for the last 10 minutes is to me because retail has become and been founded on forever, this human to human element. I personally think, and I'm a tech, I've been founder of a tech company. So I, I run in like in more advanced, you know, circles, even that, but I, I personally think the overarching theme of like, everybody should be digital. Now, everybody should have an e-commerce site. Everybody should be moving into this. I personally think it's 
not as simple of an answer as that. I don't think it's just it, like uh, if you're a brick and mortar retail and you have no online presence whatsoever, you're not going to succeed because for, for us, we work with small retailers and at a small retailer, you only have 10 employees. Every person is doing a very specific job. So yes, right now you are only online. So it's a different conversation for the, the, the month going into it. But I think if you're the number one person in your entire state or entire region at that building that human to human experience, and you've done that for 20 years, it be careful about all of a sudden trying to go to create that same experience. It's really hard to create that same experience, not person to person in a digital environment. So I don't think it's as simple as every single person on earth, every single retailer should have a digital way of servicing them. It, it just definitely should be considered as an extension. But I personally don't think it's as simple as like, online is everything and it's the future. And if you don't have it, you're going to go out of business. Um, because for me, like the minute you show me that drink, honestly, like my first thought, because I personally love brick and mortar retail too. So I started and I, I love online retail too. But if I could walk into an Australian retailer and they could hand me an espresso martini, I would shop there forever. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, true. That's, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there are retailers that do it, but none that I can afford. And um, I, I think the, um, uh, so I, you know, uh, I was going to make a joke about, no, I disagree. I think it's all digital shops will close forever, <laughs> uh, but no, Oh, I breathed in. That's a terrible idea to do with a fake cigar. Um, the, no, no, no. I think you, you, are. um, I think the way that you think about it is the reason why your tech company will do well in retail. So there are plenty of tech people who are unable to walk past their subjectivity. Mm-hmm. So they sit there and go, I believe in tech. I use tech. Everyone I know uses tech, therefore uh, it's all about tech. Um, you know that that's obviously ill-informed and subjective. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I mentioned this before: humans are a pack animal. Um, you know, we crave interaction. Now, some of us—I'm an introvert by nature, which I know my hat is not necessarily showing off right now. Um, that's why, you know, I was excited when you said I could drink. Uh, <laughs> um, like the, so for me, so, you know, the idea of being a pack animal in a social interaction is I have a very small group of people I trust and I like to hang out with. Like that's my people. Mm-hmm. But I'm also happy to get up on a stage and talk and do a, you know, because that's kind of, that's me, but that's just me. Um, everyone's going to be different about how they want to interact and how they want to interact with people and how they want to interact with brands. Brands have a personality whether we like them or not. There's plenty of behavioral evidence that shows that we do treat brands. You know, we're talking to a consultant over the phone. It's like, you did this. Like, well, no, that person didn't, but you're talking to the brand and you've given the brand a personality. That's how humans do it. That's how we've evolved to do it. So you will need to ensure that you maintain a relationship which is a brand to human, but a human to human relationship. And I think, you know, we, um, you know, what would the world look like without stores? Boring, probably. Uh, it'll be a bit Wally-ish, a Disney movie. Um, we're all kind of wandering around with our grips. Um, uh, the, if, if someone hasn't watched that, they're going to go, what is this guy on? About? <laughs> um, no, like the idea being that, you know, it is absolutely human to human and it should be human to human. That doesn't mean that you don't have incredible digital experiences. Right. And, you know, one of, one of my uh, um, incredible humans that I am privileged to have run into, in fact, a group of, of wonderful humans, I think the team that founded Showfields in New York, mm-hmm. I've done a ton of, like, you know, I've had a million conversations with them. I've shown, I, I swear I brought a million people through this store at one point. Like they talk about it in a way which is it's C-commerce. So, you know, e-commerce was this whole idea of it's going to pick up and, you know, Amazon's going to take over 
everything and that's it. We're never going to, you know, shops will close, blah, blah, blah. Like shops may close, brands do not. Like there's differences mm-hmm. in the way that, that you know, that, um, that businesses can react if they adapt. You need to have both though, you know. So e-commerce, yes, it's really important. Convenience is important. Price proximity, you know, which used to be getting a shop on my shop, you know, putting a shop in my, the corner of my estate or where I live, my town, um, would be, you know, how I got proximity. The internet sold for proximity. So now it's about price and branding and experience and transparency of your brand and your purpose. And there's a whole bunch of extra layers to it now. Um, so yes, the internet is important and technology is important, but there is absolutely an incredibly important role for a physical store, which is both growth of brand, acquisition of new customers, retention of existing customers, fulfillment and returns. You know, like the returns crisis that's going to hit post COVID nineteen is going to be incredible. I mean, yeah. still, you know. People, you know, brands that don't have a solid reverse logistics process who might have a really good forward logistics process but have a terrible reverse, like that's going to be challenging for them now, let alone without shops open. When shops do open, then there's going to be a whole other thing that's going to happen. So how do you use stores to help you solve those challenges? You know, there's a, there's a million reasons why I would happily say to anyone who thinks shops are closing and digital is everything, I would very proudly call them an idiot. Um, <laughs> and... Tell them to stop there. I shouldn't say an idiot. That's unfair. But certainly they shouldn't be as subjective as they're being. Right. And they need to probably have a look at a bit more evidence. Than they're right. Not saying it might not happen in 400 years. Sure. But in sure. the next 30 or so, I can't see it happening. Right. Absolutely. So... I'm out of drink. Does that mean we're out of time? Yeah, I think I think we should probably start wrapping up here because, uh, frankly, like if I if I drink too much, I'm not gonna be able to go back to work either. So and <laughs> and I, and people are probably gonna tune out by now because we're gonna start rambling <laughs> and stop making sense. Yeah, we'll, watch, we'll watch the like the ratings. The, the views just like slowly slowly trickle off at the end. Yeah, probably. Like, who are these drunk <laughs> in weird so, coats? So is there? I mean, like just on on that note. I mean, is there? Is there something that you want to use this format to either send a message or share to the world, the retail community that maybe isn't being shared by all the media or the press or retail press right now, just to kind of end with? Um, I think retail is an industry that is constantly underrated. Um, People look down on retail. They don't respect the duty that retail does for society. They don't, for whatever reason, respect the people who work in it. Like it's, there's this, um, it gives most people employment at one point in their careers, you know, between mm-hmm. retail and hospitality, mm-hmm. you know, that's where everyone has a career at one point mm-hmm. usually. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's just an incredibly underrated place and that infuriates me because of what it does do and the greatness that lies within its people, mm-hmm. the greatness that, rely, that lies in what it can do and what it can stand for. I think, um, you know, take... Uh, if I, yeah, again, have an espresso martini with yourself, doesn't matter where you work, whether you're stocking shelves, um, you know, selling on the shop floor, furloughed at the moment, whether you're an executive, whether you're a CEO, um, take that second, have a breath and be proud of retail and be proud of being in retail and then try and work out what it is that you can do to help shift and reframe the way people see it as an industry. And that can come from actions, i.e. improving your rate of innovation, improving your rate of change, improving the way you, you know, you rock up 
in the store format, the way that you rock up in your digital formats. Um, and then, you know, just, or just every day to work. Like just think about how it is that you can do that little bit difference that's going to help reframe it so that, you know, it earns the respect it should. And, you know, society, I mean, I could, there's a whole nother call and a whole nother espresso martini on my rants about the way society measures people and success and their value and all that kind of crap. Mm-hmm. Let's not get into that now. <laughs> but, you know, be really damn proud for being a retailer at the moment because they are, because we as an industry have stood up and done some incredible things. Um, we are already incredible, but we can definitely be better. And if we just think about how we can, you know, think about our customers more, think about the humans that are involved in our business more and evolve the way that we innovate to be faster and uh, smarter, then we will all be better for it at the end. And I think that would just be an incredible outcome if we all just did that little bit. And it could just be one small point about telling everybody that you're proud to work in retail instead of worrying about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I went through that. Mm-hmm. I, I had those moments of kind of like, I work in retail. It's like, well, why am I saying it like that? I'm really damn proud of the work that I do. For sure. I work hard. I work stupidly long hours. I deal with terrible humans. <laughs> I deal with wonderful humans. I deal with all of these things. I should be damn proud of what I do. And retailers should be proud of what they do so at the end of all of this if, if there's nothing else that good that comes from it yes there'll be some really crap terrible heartbreaking stories but if there is some good that comes from it is that the, you know to you know our good friend ron thurston always says retail pride let's sure. have let's boost up that retail pride that'd be my that'd be my one request for sure. And I mean, I can't say it much better than you said it. I am super, super proud to be in this industry and to be in retail. And I think everybody, I mean, especially the people who are furloughed, I mean, not to touch on that specifically, but I know it's, you're taking, you know, their hits right now. Be proud of, I mean, like what you've done so far and what you can come back to, but I just want to take one, one kind of additional point to that and say, I think it's easy with what's happening right now because we're not a recurring business. You know, people don't guaranteed come back every month. You know, every day is a new day. You don't know what you're going to sell, et cetera, et cetera. Inherently, what's going to happen, most people, unless you're Amazon, are going to be down in a lot of those respects. Foot traffic, sales online, and it's easy to get focused on, I think, the lost customers when, to me, it just says you now have less customers, which means you have more time to wow those customers. If you had 100 customers before and now you have 50, you now have twice the time to cater to those 50. So I... I think everybody, if you're brick and mortar retail, whatever retail, like you said, just like the whole kind of point of this conversation is the human to human element is, yeah, exactly. And you can't, you can't put that away, the human to human element of it. So there shouldn't be a person that walks your floor that doesn't get a smile and a hello. There shouldn't be, you know, a person that sends an email and doesn't get a support request back. Now's your time to just wow and give the highest level of customer service you've ever given in your entire career. Yeah. Completely agree. And it's like, it is, you know, it will be tough and there'll be commercial challenges and there'll be chapter 11s and there'll be all of that stuff. It's really difficult, but you are right. There is a, you know, think of the business that you can evolve to. I don't, I don't want to use, there's a lot of people talking about, you know, how do people rebuild all that kind of stuff? Right. You know, that's so, you know, anecdotal, like every business is, there's some businesses with strong balance sheets that won't need to rebuild. There'll be businesses that um, you know, are in different, just, there are just different levels of business. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you, you know, evolve? What's the next chapter of your book? Yeah. You want to, you want to write post this. So 
yeah, you're, you're in the middle of writing the, the COVID-19, how we handled the crisis chapter. What's the next one look like? That's the perfect line to end it. Cheers to that, buddy. I mean, we're going to end it there. That was perfect. Cheers to you, mate. And uh, yeah, have a good dinner jacket, mate. Looks yeah. great. Yeah, you as well. I love your cigar. Yeah. <laughs> have you noticed how I get more Aussie the more I drink? You, yeah, I did notice that, actually. I love it. I wish you'd have another one. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe later. All right, we'll, we'll have to do this again sometime because I, I really enjoyed this. No worries, mate. I All agree. Right. Cheers, mate. Talk to you soon. So that was my conversation with Andrew Smith. If you enjoyed this format that is a little bit more casual, a little more free-flowing, shoot me a message. I would love to hear. My email is nick, N-I-C-K, at clientelier, that is C-L-I-E-N-T-E-L-I-E-R.com. Please shoot me an email. Would love to hear from you. And that's it for today.